Welcome to Second Rate Film School. I'm Andrew. And I'm Jake. And today we are covering one of the best Christmas movies of all time, Live Free and Die Hard. I thought this was a good day to die hard. I couldn't, I was going to say that one, but I actually haven't seen that one and I forgot what the name was, so I had to go with the last one I saw. So. I don't think anyone saw that one. Yeah, Live Free or Die Hard is not bad, but we'll get into the sequels. Um, no, we're doing Die Hard as the thumbnail and the jokes would imply. Um, yeah, we'll get into the debate as it goes on, I'm sure, about is this a Christmas movie or not. But fuck it. We're going to talk about it. Everyone else does. So you don't think it's a Christmas movie? Screw off. It's a Christmas movie. Yeah. Um, I think this should go down as possibly one of the best character introductions in an action movie ever. This, this is something that, as I've said, we'll get into the sequels later, but um, gets lost as the movies go on, but that McLean is just a normal guy here. So that th this is very nice that he's kind of afraid of flying, that he's just like a normal guy. He's like, I don't like flying a lot and all that. It made him feel a lot more realistic. Yeah, well, that's the character was originally set to be more of like a traditional 80s action star, like an Arnold Schwarzenegger Stallone, but... It was the script is rewritten to accommodate the conceit of McLean just being an average guy. Well, that's like the thing where it's like they keep talking about doing like a prequel to Die Hard. And I think they did a comic Die Hard year one or year zero or something like that. And it's like you can't really do that because or I don't think you should do something like that because the whole conceit is he was just a normal beat cop. I mean, that was like the tagline wrong place at the right time. Um you know, type thing where it's just like he was a normal cop and then got thrown into these extraordinary situation and then as much as I love watching the sequels it like just kind of ruins a little bit of that every time I think about like it's like with Pirates of the Caribbean 1 I enjoy the sequels but god pardon me wishes it was just a one-off movie here well yeah that's because it, it's a contradiction of the average guy being thrust into a extraordinary situation I mean even in the second one the claims he asks, you know, how can the same shit happen to the same guy twice? And then, you know, once you get to, you might get away with that the second time, but once it keeps, well, that's why the third one, they devised the whole with a vengeance thing. That, and that's but that was all, accept, yeah. what'd you say? Yeah, that's the only one I really accept how it happens, but, you know. Yeah, but that's all like a smoke screen, though. He, he's just, McLean's just a pawn in that one. But still, it's it's a good enough justification to get him into it. Um, but yeah, no, th this is just, I love this movie. I probably watched this when I was 10. My dad, my typical dad movie, where he's like, yeah, we're going to watch this great Christmas movie, son. We're going to watch Christmas Vacation and Die Hard. Well, my mom's like, okay, we're going to watch The Grinch and Charlie Brown. And then my mom goes to work. It's like, no, no, we're going to watch Die Hard. Fuck yeah. This might be the first time done. I ever saw boobs. So I... Oh, from Reginald Bell Johnson? Yes. Anyway. <laughs> yeah, here's Supergirl's boyfriend. Yeah, I think I watched this movie for the first time. I got into this movie very late. Really? I remember it came on TV, yeah, on AMC. And I watched it that way, I think, when I was like 15. And I, I really liked it and everything. I really enjoyed watching it. But I didn't quite appreciate the movie for what it was. And... You're all going to hate me for this, but probably in, you know, the last couple of years, 
I, I, I watched the movie before several times, but I didn't really love it and really appreciate it until funnily enough, the beginning of the pandemic when lockdown happened. Really? And I, I was watching this movie a lot every night. It kind of almost became like a comfort movie. You know, sometimes just for entertainment and other times I would just study it because it's it's a perfect script, perfect movie. And that's that's when I really started to appreciate just how great this movie is. Yeah, there are Cause three. For, oops, sorry. Oh, no, but um, because for years, the, the third one was my favorite because that was the one I watched the most when I came on AMC. And uh, even though I knew this one was the best, but the third was my favorite. But then. I rewatched the third one last year and I realized, yeah, that's not, that's not the case. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, no, I think there, there are very few flaws in this movie. I, I cite this and like back to the future is like some of the tightest, like 80 movie scripts or just scripts in general. And I, the only flaws I have in this movie are nitpicks um, or logistical um, things that yeah, you're not supposed to think about too much, but they're there. But that's the classic thing I've said on all these commentaries and videos is, you only notice it after the 50th time watching. Um, it's just great. Um, everything about the, like, what type of people Holly and John are, you're learning in, you know, we're five minutes in, or almost six minutes in. So we know he doesn't like flying. He's a cop. He's got a chippy sense of humor. You know, you're fucking California right here. Um, and, you know, we know she's, you know, in a bad place with their marriage and all that. And it's just very perfect you know people could say uh, you know oh it's all expositions like it's very well done exposition there's nothing wrong with exposition you need exposition yeah for a movie in order for it to make sense it just depends on how you execute it yeah and here it's it's great well you get all the exposition out of the way here with with argyle in the car there's a very good justification for where he sits up front with him and well i guess we'll get into that when uh well we're about to get into it um i do have to say you know, obviously, as we've alluded to and made reference to, we're L.A.-based people. Uh, my old office was in the area um, where Century City was. So I could see Nakatomi, the Fox building, from my office window. And then when we moved offices, I actually had to drive through the opening credits a lot. So this exact path they're taking, I'm like, oh, I would do that a couple times a week as we were moving. So it was, it was very trippy. And it's like, again, very well shot because I'm like, thinking about the scene in my head and i was actually one day even had the movie on my phone and was playing as i was driving I'm like okay does this actually line up with how long i'm sitting in traffic and they did a pretty good job continuity wise it's not like a oh shit like th- this should have been a two second drive or whatever so it lines up very well so i give them props to that yeah, I've been to the the Fox building a couple times through an Uber, and when I saw it, I, I thought, oh, that looks like the Nakatomi building, but I was like, oh, no, it's not the Nakatomi building, it just looks similar, and then, no, it, it, it was, so one of that, one of that, uh, that front entrance and everything, it was pretty cool. It was actually cool, the first time, yeah, I'm sad Jacob can't be here with us, because the first time I, he watched the movie at all, he had seen all the sequels. It was a joke with him. He's like, it was like, you know, he acknowledged it's ridiculous that he'd seen all the sequels, but never the original. And me and him went to like a 35th, it was some anniversary screening that Fox did. And they did it on top of the parking garage that's now there. It wasn't there when they filmed this. And it was really cool getting to watch the movie on a big screen projected like in front of the building. And, um, yeah, I mean, it's a very 80s-looking building, but it has such an iconic design. Like, there's a world where this is just filmed at a 
generic office looking building you know square and it's like not nearly as visually interesting hmm. yeah so there's like a parking garage like right there about um i think it's where you see he's about to drive past you can see the roundabout right there i think is where um the parking garage yeah you can see sorry we went through that entranceway and they built up more it was underground parking garage and then i guess they had to add layers but um hmm. yeah and now we're at the end of the opening credits hmm. get a look at the location for the rest of the movie and it's um it's great i also have to say again going with jacob having never seen that when we were going there and you go through security they were giving everyone twinkies you know, as Reginald Hales mm -hmm. gets Twinkies and it's a running joke in the movie. And Jacob was just very confused. Like, why they were just handing us Twinkies? He's like, what, Fox can't put on, like, a better <laughs> spread for us? It's just Twinkies? And I'm like, no, no, it, 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 it'll make sense. <laughs> yeah, I was so sad because we couldn't get to go in the building, but the um, lobby did look similar. I can't remember if the... Um, stone work desk was or front desk was still there but that all glass entranceway was still the same so it was really cool yeah here comes the one inconsistency um he makes him go through picking all the names of oh this is what floor they're on oh yeah those are the only people left in the building and i was like well why'd you make me do it but in reality we need to show that she doesn't go by mclean she goes by Gennaro, and you kind of ignore it. Unless you're a nerd like I am. What so is this the location of of the Fox building? Do they film it in the in this building or is this a set? They they did film it in there. Like they charged themselves rent. So the tax loophole. Um I think the main floor like where the party is was a set but i remember when i went to that screening i was seeing it on facebook they were showing people up on the roof like pictures of it people up on the roof and people in the um maintenance um area you know where the fight between him and um carl happens at the end mm -hmm. um so it's like yeah they were filming in the building because they were not actively like they they were in the middle of construction that's why several floors are under construction they're like uh, they wrote that in um because that you know, as it said earlier, this is based on a novel. Um, you know, none of that construction element was in the book. And that's my favorite fun fact about this movie was, I'm blanking on the name of it, but um, this was a sequel to a book. It was like a book series about a grizzled detective, and the detective was like in his 70s. Mm. And um, in the first movie, it was played by Frank Sinatra. And Sinatra had it in his contract that if they ever made a sequel to the book... Or another one another one of the book series into a movie he had first rights to the lead and um you know uh, to, um oh my god uh, mctiernan and all them did not know this they like read the book like this would be a great idea and all that and then they're told by legal it's like well we have to offer it to sinatra first <laughs> and they're like what oh, like, and i'm just imagining an alternate world where sinatra didn't turn it down Frank Sinatra calling through the air ducts and be like, ah, now I know what it feels like to be a TV dinner. And it would have been horrible. And no one would like this movie except for people like us in Red Letter Media. Just everything came together so perfectly. Just lightning in a bottle. 
type of situation that happens with movies like this because I think Eastwood, uh, Clint Eastwood was lined up to, to star in it and direct it at some point too. But he went on to do a, a The Death Wish, I think. So, yeah, you know, luck with that and changing the type of protagonist and getting John McTiernan and Bruce Willis, who this is like his first starring role. They took like such a chance on him. Yeah, he was actually amazing. He had been in Moonlighting, which, um, yeah, that's where a lot of the humor comes from. And then he was also in um, this movie called Blind Date, which with him and um, Kim Basinger. And it's a rom-com set in L.A. And it's funny because at several points you could actually see the Fox building under construction in the background. <laughs> also, I never got the cocaine thing when I was 10 years old. I'm like, what was he doing in there, Dad? And my dad's like, uh, he was just waiting, you know, hitting on the wife and all that because, you know, infidelity was more preferable of an explanation than him doing cocaine. So, <laughs> so th- this I, is a set, too. Yeah. You can, t- the, yeah, the background is, looks like a. I think like a all painting. this floor and the vault were um, sets, and then pretty much, every, and then like probably the conference room, and then everything else I think they actually shot in the Fox building okay but um yeah no i mean ellis is great i jokingly referred to him as supergirl's boyfriend because he was in the supergirl movie uh but you know that he's an actor who i wish he would see in more stuff and he's great in here as the sleazy 80s businessman um in an alternate world i could also see a it would be definitely toned down but i could also see bill murray playing that role for some, like just the the cheesy like like sleaze ball like i'm just thinking i was re-watching ghostbusters and just like thinking like you know i could see ellis doing the shock experiment thing at the beginning to hit on a woman so maybe that's why this is the start of uh their conflict here with with the watch that it's a through line throughout the movie yeah and that's actually like a pretty fucked up tragic um element in the book that really doesn't come into play here that um <laughs> fuck it i'll just spoil the ending of the book um you've had 40 years to read it um that the terrorists who are seizing nakatomi reveal that the um you know company that holly works for and it's all they alluded to here when they when um hans shows the model off and like you know takagi says like oh are the tribal people and blah 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 you know he just hand waves away that's a reference to the company was funding coups and shit like it was a social commentary on companies and like the cia doing coups in these latin american countries and it's revealed that the Holly character, which is John McClane's daughter, because he's an elderly man in the book, was part of it and bought herself a Rolex with the blood money. And in the end, Hans actually pulls her out the window on the watch and it kills her. So she dies in the end. Oh, wow. Yeah, the, bu- the book was really depressing. Like, I think it was the last one because it also alluded to the McClane character potentially dying he's taken away on a stretcher and is just angry that people are trying to save him and they wisely change the ending yeah maybe that works in the context and for like a sequel gives a more aged grizzled detective but here yeah it 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 works i mean not only is it more it's pleasing from like a more summer perspective but this is when you get down to it, it's not really an action film it's it's really the story of a man trying to make amends with his wife yeah. and apologizing for it i mean that's really the, the construction of the movie and that's why the movie works so well 
Yeah, no, I mean, it's just great. And every performance here from the leads, and obviously we'll get to Alan Rickman, you know, fucking killing it in his first ever movie. I mean, talk about, like, you know, starting off on a strong foot. Um, down to, like, you know, even characters like Argyle and Theo and, like, the various other henchmen who I've never bothered learning their names. So, like, they're all just great. All the fucking cops, all the different reporters, like, everyone is perfectly cast here. And that's a testament to the actors, caster, casting directors, and John McTiernan for getting great performances out of all of them. Mm-hmm. But yeah, no, and this is something that it's sad with the other sequels that you kind of lose um, the character dynamic between Bonnie Bedalia and um, Bruce Willis. You know, I, in the second one, you know, they're separated even more in th than this one, but their relationship is good. And then the third one, they're divorced and then, you know, unseen in the latter two. And it's just like, you know, that was, like you said, the great through line with these ones or with this one is that it's him trying to make amends with his wife. Yeah. I mean, what, again, in the sequel, what more can you do with, with Holly, you know? And, and the problem with the second movie too, is it's, it's not very compelling. She's in it, but she's just stuck on the plane for the whole fucking movie and she doesn't really have anything to do. Yeah, I don't blame her for not coming back to the third one. Yeah. At least here she gets to interact with Hans and we'll get to those scenes. Like, you know, as great as Rickman is, obviously it's like, you know, Bonnie Bedelli is, you know, keeping toe to toe with him. And when you really time it down, she gets more screen time with, you know, Rickman than Bruce Willis does, you know, by a large amount. Mm -hmm. And this is great. You know, th this scared the shit out of me when I was tensing. I'm like, oh, they just killed that guy. There's a dude from Walker, Texas Ranger. That's, that's all that I know him from. Did you see they did like a diehard battery commercial and he was in it? I think so, yeah. Yeah, they brought back Bruce Willis and it's just like a bunch of terrorists trying to kill him and it's representing the diehard batteries and he's in it for like three seconds and gets blown up. I do remember that now, yeah. I'm actually surprised they haven't brought him back like as the sequels got worse and worse. Um because he's like the only there's two people that survived this at the end terrorist wise it's him and then the um one guy that john pistol whips at the end knocking him out mm. so and you know now they're a guy like no one remembers his fucking name so um yeah i'm surprised they haven't tried bringing him back and then here's the only other mistake that i think of is where the fuck is the ambulance just saying it's not in the back of the van And they all wouldn't have fit in that ambulance. Hans knew a bunch of people were going to die. Could you actually imagine if that was like a twist where he like was going to like kill off all of his crew and just like leave with the money and like McLean was actually helping him for part of his plan? <laughs> um, yeah. And then this is just, you know, great, like, you know, showing that the building's technology is... Um, working against you and all that. You know, that's very much, I think, concerns of boomers in the 80s were like oh my god it's like war games it's like we can't have computers on everything that's what's so interesting about this movie uh, just in terms of Hans Gruber's plan and everything because it does revolve around the security of the building and then complications arise and we'll, we'll get into that more but this is just the start of it where okay everything is going very smoothly they're supposed to lock the building 
down so nobody gets out, check. Then you have the hostages, check. And then things get complicated. Yeah, well, I mean, that's the thing. It's like a, a lot of these villains, plans, and action movies in general, but even the diehard sequels, it's like, wow, these are pretty garbage plans. But it's like, you know, Han's plan, like, when you really get down to it, is pretty solid. And, I, and there are people who joke with um, his line later in the movie. It's like, oh, we're not terror. Who said we're terrorists and all that? It's like, you know, it's some, I saw a comedian once um, say, it might have been Patton Oswalt um, say, um, like, that's a terrible that you want to frame your heist as terrorism. That's like trying to, like, you know, oh, I want to steal that woman's purse. I'm going to try and make it seem like I'm going to rape her because that'll be better for the police to think that I'm trying to do that instead of just stealing a purse. And I'm like, eh, I, you're kind of right. But at the same time, I think it's still a one, it's a badass line. And two, it, it still makes sense. I think that's like it makes them look at this a completely different way that the hostage negotiators for a bank robbery would be different than the hostage negotiators for terrorists and he knew that that would buy them more time because now it's the fbi dealing with it versus lapd right well i think that pan oswald thing was just a joke but no i know but like i've heard people say that like a lot like and then like he needed them to shut the power off to the block to get it. And it's like, no, that's Hans's thing. He's thinking four steps ahead to know. Yeah. If I do this, this, and this, they're going to fucking do the hard part for me. Exactly. Um, yeah. And that's also, those people are idiots. Yeah. Um, nice moment. We see him looking at his wallet. He's, you know, we see he's about to call Argyle and be like, you know what? I'm going to try and reconcile with my wife. This is fine. And then, uh Oh, the party's starting. I also think it was um, funny that it was, um, I think it was J.J. Abrams said because for years he would actually do this with making fists with your toes when he would get off a plane because he thought it would work. And then he realized it never worked. He just like said, it's like, oh, that was just like a script decision. Just like they needed to justify why he wasn't wearing his shoes. And I've been doing this for fucking years. And I occasionally still do it myself. I know it doesn't work, but I feel like it kind of does. So I do it anyways. Yeah. It's like in Batman Begins when Rachel Gould tells Bruce to rub your chest, your arms will take care of themselves. It sounds plausible, but it, it's not true. It just You just need a great actor and the right context to sound plausible. Yeah, and, and with this, like, it doesn't even fucking matter because it's just like some weird business guy's like, yeah, that, this thing works for me or whatever. So, like, even if we try and it doesn't work, it's like, okay, well, fucking that's what you get for trusting some asshole on a plane. So is this the start where Ode to Joy starts playing? I believe so, yeah. Type in the comments below if you hear Ode to Joy right now. And then this is a great moment because it shows that how real McLean is. He doesn't just go running out with his gun shooting. He knows, oh shit, there's a bunch of guys with machine guns. I have like 12 rounds. This is not the fucking time. And he fucking runs away to try and regroup. Oh, you know who this guy is, Wes? The guy in the ponytail. Oh. It's Vigo from Ghostbusters 2. Wait, really? Yeah. Are you fucking with me? No, of course not. Look at him. I, I recognized him last night watching it. Huh. Look. Can you see it on your VHS rip? I know it's a lot brighter. 
more blown out, but you could probably, yeah, there it is. Maybe, I, I don't know. Well. God help us if you ever become a lawyer or a politician, Jake. I could never tell if you're lying or not. <laughs> no, no, it is him. Okay. Um, yeah, this is great. You know, again, like we talked over Takagi saying, like, this floor and this floor or construction, all that. So John is like mentally preparing to know, like, okay, what's on each floor? Now, one can make an argument why he keeps running up instead of running down, but eh, you know, it is what it is. Um, yeah, no, I mean, this is great. And again, it goes back to the whole filming in the building when it wasn't complete. And I think it was definitely this floor because you can see, like, the shape of this is the shape of the building. Like, there's the um, inward triangle behind him, like, from insert into the building. So I know you could recreate that, but I feel like they would have just been lazy and um, made a square room if they had to build that as a set. And furthermore, you don't see any of that in this floor. I know we only see small spaces, but you never see and the weird jagged shapes in the building. So that leads me to believe that even more. But yeah, no, Alan Rickman. Um, I know a lot of our generation knows him just as Snape from Harry Potter, but fuck man, Hans Gruber, you know, one of the best villains in movies of all time. Yes. And there's many reasons why he, why he has that title. I mean, that's the thing. It's like, I, you know, even though I love the other Die Hard movies, for the, even with their flaws, it's like, you can't tell me that Timothy Oliphant gets anywhere close to this. Yeah, I think Bruce Willis would agree with you there. Yeah. I think he even said as much about Timothy Oliphant, that, that Kevin Smith story. Yeah, I love that. <laughs> no, and this scene is great where he's going through, like, trying to find Takagi and listing off all this information about him. it just it's scary like the level of information he has on him and it's like we take this for granted in the digital internet age we are in now but it's like you have to like do some serious background checks in the 80s like i don't even like what you go to a library how do you find this out in the 80s there was no linkedin now 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 it's less impressive it's like oh you just looked up my linkedin and like facebook to find all this shit out hans but it makes him seem that much more menacing. Yeah. So right now he's seemingly a terrorist. Yeah. But what makes him so interesting is just the, the contradiction of, he's just a thug when you really just boil it down. He's just, he's, just, he's a thief who wants to make money, but he's just, a very he's played well by Alan Rickman. Yeah, he's a very well-funded, well-dressed um, thug. And yeah, yes. that's the great moment. Like we see he smiles and he's like, how do you do? And then like, He's humming Ode to Joy here, talks about, like, oh, that, those are great suits. I have several of them. I, you know, Arafat gets them. It's like he's a man of culture and all that. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's the way the character is and just the casting is what makes it. Otherwise, the, the character wouldn't be as special. You, you could have cast someone else and it would have gone horribly wrong. And that's the thing um, with but again, that's the thing with Diary I like I love Jeremy Irons and all that, but like he's obviously a terrific actor, but it's like, you know, it's like Hans Light almost. Yeah, in a way, he, he's good for for what he, he is, but Hans is just he's 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 a sophisticated thief, I guess. Or yeah, well, and, that, and that's the thing. Like he's like admiring the intricacy of the models here and all that. You know, it's 
you know, late, like later, like you said, like McLean says, he's like, what, you blow up the whole building just to steal a few purses? But he, in a way, the fact that he's just a thief, despite him being, you know, wealthy and like he says, you're classical educate, classically educated. It's kind of pathetic just how greedy he is and just he just wants this money. That's what makes it so interesting. He, like just at, at the end when you see him robbing and everything, it just it just looks kind of pathetic. No, that's like what like Holly says. It's like you know all this grandstanding and like all the, like and you're just a common thief. And he's like, there's nothing common about me. It's like that thing. It's almost like a even though the third one is the cat and mouse with the Gruber and McLean story, it's almost like this where he's like he's almost trying to prove to the world how great he is. Like this is the he's like proud of his plan he's like they're gonna be sifting through the rubble before they even realize we'll be collecting 20 percent on a beach and it's like he's proud of his thing i mean he he's like a couple steps away from like a bond villain here like you like if you give this guy a space laser he could be a bond villain that's how like interesting and like you know grandiose his plan is and how proud of it he is and like you said it's just interesting because it's like yeah he's fucking just stealing I can't remember how much they say. I mean, it's a shit ton of money. Don't get me wrong, but you're like, man, you just killed a lot of people and are facing, like, you, you might get the electric chair if you get caught. So, this is the start where things get complicated for Hans. Yeah. One thing that I, I learned that this movie does so well is, just, you know, there's that saying in a movie where you, you know, imagine everyone's a protagonist, their own story, you know, that saying. Yeah. Well, the film, it's the same way. I remember Stephen D'Souza talked about this, one of the writers of the film. He said, just imagine, it helps when you're writing a script to just imagine even the antagonist as the protagonist of their own story. So if you were to watch this, it's just Hans Gruber is the protagonist of this movie. John McClane's his antagonist fucking everything up for him. And yeah. But this is the start of it, though, where, you know, Everything's going according to plan, except John, who he doesn't know about yet. And then he's trying to get the code from Takagi. Otherwise, you know, and obviously he doesn't have it. Otherwise, the movie would be over. Yeah. So they have to do it the hard way, like he says. Yeah, and, you know, Takagi doesn't take him as seriously as he does. And, you know, he gets a fucking bullet in the head. And great squid effect here. You know, that That's why, you know, CGI can be great, but seeing this shot happen, you know, him wincing from, like, the because you know, Brickman clearly never fired a gun, and then like the fake blood coagulating in the air and all that—it's it, just a great effect. Mm-hmm. I will say, part of me wishes that Hans didn't do this. What the henchman did—that you know, it's not till the end of the movie that he tries getting his hands dirty personally. But um, it could also, I guess, sh- suppose show that he's deadly as well. I go back and forth on that every year when I watch this. I think it's that he's a dangerous man, too. Yeah. And then this is very cleverly um, composed with the door because it took me years to realize that he's like, he can hear all this, of course. And it's the same thing with Elevator. He can hear Hans talking. But when you notice the door has the bar across, like the wooden partition across, even though it's glass, that when you sh- when you sh- first show him crawling in since they're all sitting he can't see hans's face so that adds extra reason why he doesn't realize it's hans at first in their meetup scene 
And then that's also great. just shows how callous these guys are and nonchalant about murder they are that Theo and um, Carl made a bet on how long it would take him to kill him or if he would kill him at all. Well, yeah, depending on if he knew the code or not. Yeah. A lot of great handheld shots in this movie with McTiernan doing this. Yeah. So this is where you kind of get to the wrinkle where he's like, you can break the code, can't you? And this is why we know why Theo is here. Yeah. And then this is great, you know, um, you know, McLean talking to himself, you know, and all that. He provides all the dialogue to himself, but, you know, it feels natural that he is blaming himself. It's like, no, then you'd be dead yourself, stupid. Oh, wait, no, we're a couple, I'm a little early in that. You know, please tell me you heard the shots, our guy. That's great that he, mm -hmm. like, it's... My my argument still works, God damn it! That he's um you know saying what the audience is thinking. It's like, can anyone hear this and all that? And it's like, nope. He's got the music playing too loudly, and he's not paying attention. Okay, no one's coming. Did you ever play the NES Die Hard game? No. It's a lot of fun. I found an emulator for it. Really addicting game. Just saying. It's, there's nothing to say personally here right now for me. This is where you start to get to know the geography of of the building itself when John is starting to traverse around it. Yeah, well, and that's the thing. It's like they, they said, like, at the counter, that's what McKiernan was like saying. He's like, that's why we put the um, naked girl poster. He's like, you know, one, it's a funny joke and all that. And then, two, it's like, it helps you remember, okay, this is where he ran through beforehand. Because it's like, yeah, a lot of this is just generic office space and construction and roofing and all that. So how would the audience know it? You put shit in like that to be like, oh, he was already here. Little stuff like that goes a long way. Just... Yeah. Going back to us watching the VHS riff of this, isn't it great canon <laughs> scan? <laughs> Only the best. That's how my YouTube channel is, man. You know, I, I go from high, the high highs of interviews with great people to VHS rips. Yeah, and this is a great, you know, moment. He's like, how do I get him here? I look at the fire sprinkler and then look at that. Perfect. And then here's Huey Lewis. <laughs> it's not Huey Lewis. Every year I think about it. I, I always think it's Huey Lewis. Everyone thinks that, like, I remember my parents, oh, that's Huey Lewis. Oh, that's like a big urban legend on this movie, but, but it's not Huey Lewis. <laughs> you imagine just Huey Lewis is like, you know, like, this is a couple years before Back to the Future, so he's like, you know, I, I, my music career is not going great, you know, I, I gotta you know, do something. Um, Yeah, they filmed everything on that one leading up stretch of road, because that's the same road McLean drives by, and you can see when the cars start turning around, you can see a gas station. And that's where um, where Al is actually. At. It's they're passing it right now. You can see the last truck in the line just passed. That's the gas station that Al is at. So that one road got a lot of um traffic while they were filming this. That Ralph's is still there. We should go to it. No, it's okay. We've been to Ralph's. The diehard Ralph's though, even though they don't go into it. Yeah. Yeah, this and Big Lebowski were my first um, introduction to Ralph's. Huh. 
remember he's in that like when he drinks the milk in the opening he's in a rouse and like that's his like they're going through his wallet for his idea and like he's got nothing out of it except like a ralph's membership (laughs) i forgot about that (laughs) as like when i was watching in high school i'm like what the fuck is that like oh now i get it it's like hey look he's got his wegman's card on him yeah this was upstate new york it would be the wegman's plaza building the Danny Wegman Plaza building. <laughs> I was about to make a Danny Wegman reference, but I'm like, is that too obscure for the 10 people listening to this? Um, this is great, though, going back to the movie. Um, fuck, what's this guy's name? I always forget what this terrorist's name is. Carl's brother, whatever. Um, yeah, I just love he's, like, trying to convince him I'm not going to do anything, keep shooting at Fritz? him. Fritz? Tra- Fritz, yeah. Tra- I'm joking, it's not Fritz. It's just trying to do it. <laughs> McClade is tra- trapping him and all that and then this is great he's like you're a policeman you you have rules you can't do this he's like that's what my captain keeps telling me and so you know what type of character McClane is even more so he's an asshole that's why we love him sarcastic asshole it's great the, qu- the quips are like the best part of these um movies it's like I get like you know every action hero has their one liners but you know I tr- I I chuckle lightheartedly at Schwarzenegger or Stallone's one-liners. I fucking belly laugh at diehards. Well, I gotta say, did this popularize like the one-liners and the quips for action movies? I actually don't know. I I don't know. I'm trying to think. Um, did Terminator come out before this? Because that, had, I mean. <laughs> Terminator 1 did, but T2 came out after. Yeah, but they still had his, like, action live, I'll be back and all that. And... But that wasn't a one-liner, though. Yeah, well, That's just been so kind of misconstrued as one now. Um, maybe, potentially, um, had Rambo 1 came out, which I know is not your typical action movie, so that doesn't count. Did Rambo 2 or Predator come out before this? I think Predator, Predator came out before this. Yeah, no, there were, there were one-liners in Predator. So I think maybe it kicked it into overdrive. Um, by the way, yeah, the the code word was Akagi, which is one of the carriers in the Japanese fleet during World War II. So he made the jokes about Pearl Harbor and all that, but man, he really carried it in his heart. Takagi did, I guess. Which man, since he was an American, that's really some traitorous bullshit. Takagi was a bad person. He's going through his stuff here. You think he'll find a Ralph's card? Maybe. That's like, he's like he's on the phone. He's like he's got a fake ID and a Ralph's card. You can't get a fake Ralph's card. That's really hard to get. I hear. <laughs> Which I every time I see like an ID, I always quote that. Like when we were talking about fake IDs in college, I would quote that's like he could be a bartender for all we know. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> I love that yeah. line. And then, yeah, I love that line. He's like, yeah, nine million terrorists in the world. I have to kill one with feet smaller than my sister's. <laughs> so this is where John decides to reveal himself. But if he's going to do it, he's going to do it. Huh? To annoy them. Yeah. Because at this point, the jig's up. Yeah, no, I love it. Um, I've actually been tempted to buy this sweater, the ho-ho-ho, now I have a machine gun. But I realize I can wear it, never wear it outside because with how panicky people are now, I feel like I'll have someone call the cops on me if they ever see me walking around with it.
I was actually going to buy it like one year. I'm like, oh, I'll buy it and I'll wear it like on the plane ride home. And my dad's like, do not try and go through TSA wearing a sweatshirt with that. On. <laughs> He's like, you're going to get fucking tackled and sent to Guantanamo Bay. <laughs> yeah, I, and then I just love how nonchalant he is about killing. He's eating something. It's great. He's going on about how in charge he is. And right here, it's shown, nope, he's not completely in charge, doesn't have everything on control. It's great. Yep. Again, he's the protagonist of his own story. Switching autonomy. Yep. McLean now has the upper hand. Yeah. As says on his shirt. Oh, we know it because it says so on that guy's shirt. Yeah. Yeah, Florence Henderson over there. I don't know why. I know it's not Florence Henderson, but I always have thought, I think, from like, I think of the Brady Bunch when I see that screaming lady. Maybe it's the short haircut. I don't know. It's a great moment for Holly. She knows, like, oh, God, John got out. He's doing this. And then the sarcasm gets dialed up even more with the ho-ho-ho written his own blood, which is pretty dark. Yeah, I love apparently, like, in the German dub, supposedly, they um, changed all the names to be just more generic. Like, Hans turns into Harry. Carl turns into Carl with a C. And all that because they didn't want the Germans being the bad guys and all that. But that kind of got fucked up with Die Hard 3 when there's a big German flag in their hideouts. This is great too with McLean writing down uh, the names and everything. He's getting a sense of how many there are. You know, yeah, the, 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 this is just a good little detail that like a cop would do. And it's for us too to, yeah. to know these things. Oh, there's at least six guys. Okay, Carl and Hans. Those are the ones we need to pay attention to. Um, so is this is this a set or is this in the actual elevator shaft? That looks like a real elevator shaft. Like that's pretty goddamn elaborate set. So I was gonna say, yeah, balls on um, Bruce Willis for fucking riding an elevator. If that's the case. I think he's at, he's got to actually be in this elevator shaft. Yeah, that's yeah, I know, like I know later, like when he's climbing, he falls down. Like that's a matte painting, and they only did a few, um, like ten feet of it and all that, and the rest was a matte painting below him, like done in, like. Um, but it's like no, that fucking looks pretty goddamn real, and he, a lot of this shit looks real. Like when he's jumping around on the roof and all that, it's like that fucking looks like a real roof. Uh, yeah. Yeah, there it's was the amazing just how much on loc <laughs> how much on location was used for this. It's yeah, I mean when you have a building that's under construction and it's like hey, it takes place in an office building, mm -hmm. make it work, you know. And yeah, you know, we take it for granted knowing how big this movie was, became, and is you know decades later with four sequels, video games, comic books, merchandise, and shit. That to Fox, this was just an action movie. This didn't have any notable names in it. You know, Bruce Willis, like, it was, yeah, I'm moonlighting, but, like, he was a TV actor. You know, Alan Rickman had never been anything. You know, fucking Reginald Vale Johnson had been in um, Ghostbusters, right? This came out in 80... Wait, no, the Ghostbusters came out after this. No, fuck, when did this movie before. come out? Yeah, before. This okay, came this came out in 88, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, this movie has two Ghostbuster alums in it. Yeah, one from the good one. Well, sorry, three Ghostbusters alums, actually. Okay, two from the good one. Yeah. Yeah, sorry, I forgot we established if Vigo was in this. 
That's why I said two from the good one. Oh, I, I thought you said one from the good one. Yes, if you don't know what we're referring to, the reporter is Dickless Walter Peck. And I love the fact that he played such sleazy assholes in two great 80s com movies. One a comedy, and it's kind of a comedy at times. Um, yeah, I fucking love this whole back and forth with the police dispatch. It's like, this is for emergencies only. I know, does it sound like I'm fucking ordering a pizza? Perfect. His sarcasm is great. Yeah, and then this is a great moment. Carl's like, this is personal for him. These other two guys are like, eh, whatever. It's, we just got to kill another guy. It's no different than what we've already done. But him, no, he fucking is on a mission now. And that sets his, him up as the main henchman for the rest of the movie. And the far bigger threat physically than Hans is. Yeah, you need that antagonist from McLean physically. Well, he's not interacting with Hans. And what what better than now a, a vengeance field henchman yeah makes him more dangerous ups the stakes yeah because you could in a you know like there he should be in no way when he faces off against hans at a physical disadvantage with him because he, he could beat the ever-loving shit out of hans if it was like an you know he was at full health it's like okay we gotta get him weakened up here and you have him go against the fucking big bruiser beforehand mm -hmm. and then here he is carl winslow Dude still looks great, by the way. He was at that anniversary screening I was at. Other than the fact his hair is great, he looks fucking identical. He was wearing, like, a Tommy Bahama shirt and, like, a, like, pork pie hat looking like a reti your retired, like, dad or, like, his friend, like, down in Florida or whatever. He was so nice. Which is great. I love just that little touch how he tips him. <laughs> Even after just... the joke. Thanks. Just, oh, great. Bag it. He's one of the best, like, I, I want him to bend in more, to be in more shit. Like, I thought, you know, they called it the Steve Urkel show with Family Matters. He was always my favorite character on that show, just the angry father. And, oh, hey, let's get depressed at gas prices. Jeez. Hey, Jake, have you noticed gas prices in L.A. being that low since I left? No. They're not I don't think gas... Since Galen? I don't think gas prices have been that low since... The this is forever we've been alive yeah yeah and think about this is show. la it was probably like 25 cents a gallon in our podunk little towns <laughs> they were handwriting the signs on our hooter hoover bills that we lived in um this is great you know you think he two minutes ago was on top of the world had the machine gun have him freaked out, and then he's quickly, like, getting his ass handed to him, because, yeah, there's so many of them on the roof, and he's about to lose his machine gun again. So, that's an interesting um, thing you wouldn't see in too many action movies, where it's like, the hero actually goes back to square one for a good portion of the rest of the movie. You know, until the um, scene when he, like, throws the guy through the window, that's, like, another good five or so minutes. He's just back to having a pistol now. There's interesting moments in this movie where McLean isn't doing anything. Um, but we'll get to that later. Something I noticed. Where he's not on screen for like 10 minutes, but... 
I mean, that's like just an an interesting thing with this movie that you know the sequels, and this is you know sequelitis with most movies. It's like ah, oh, we got to go bigger and bigger, and the main characters always got to be doing things. It's like yeah, you look at you know going to the comparison of Pirates of the Caribbean. It's like there's stretches where you know Jack Sparrow really isn't doing much. You know he's providing color commentary and all that. We you know get the benefit of backstories through other people with him, how he's tied to Barbosa, and then it's like as you go along, it's the fucking Jack Sparrow show in the sequels. You know, and um, to a similar degree with this, it's like you get into the sequels. It's like John McClane's constantly fucking doing shit. He's constantly in firefights. There's no quiet moment like the idea that he sits down for a while he's like i'm gonna hold up here because the cops are here and just like sit here and eat a twinkie for a while and smoke a cigarette would not happen in a new die hard movie no well here he's just a man trying to do the best job he can he's... yeah so, as soon as he gets the cops attention he's like okay you guys can fucking take care of it like you're much better equipped to handle this than i am and then he gets dragged back into it when the lapd are all idiots and don't handle this well and then more so again when the FBI gets involved. Um, yeah, no, that that's the thing. It's like even though I enjoy the sequels, it's like I almost want to just pretend like they're separate Bruce Willis movies that they're not Die Hard. Because he goes, okay from, with it. he goes, he just goes from I'm like really beaten up already, and not much has happened to me. To in the fourth one, he gets in a fight with an F like sixteen fighter jet and wins, and then yeah. goes to fucking Chernobyl in the like fifth one. It's like, man, we're really losing the whole um, mainstay of this is just a normal guy. Like, I this moment would not happen in the fifth diehard where he's trying to climb down and then it fucking breaks on him and he almost gets killed by fucking sheer bad luck. But, but this is what makes it so exciting, this movie. Everything is, is... It's one getting out of one bad situation in another bad situation, right? It's it's all organic to, to what's going on. It's not an action scene for the sake of it. This action scene exists because McLean has to escape from these guys and this is his only chance to escape. So he's he's forced to, and he's, he's resorted to do this. Yeah, getting rid of his. A lot of people don't. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of people don't think of that when they write action movies or, or plan it. They just think of wanting to write the biggest best set piece. But the best action comes from situational uh, action like this. I mean, this is more suspense, but it's kind of how you change it up. You just can't be in that same mindset all the time of trying to come up with the biggest and baddest thing. Sometimes this is all you need. Also, apparently that was not scripted that the um, line the stuntman was on did break and he fell. And like, oh, that's actually a great heart-pounding moment. So then they reshot some inserts and it's like, oh, McLean barely survived. And then this is the fucking iconic shot. One of the iconic shots of the movies with him with the fucking Zippo. I fucking just love all the color commentary here. This is what my dad always says to me when they're coming out to visit me. Huh, come out to the coast. We'll get together. We'll have a few laughs. <laughs> and he's got several zingers right in a row. It's like, now I know what it feels like to be a TV dinner. Perfect. Yeah. And, you know, this is great because it shows how smart Carl is. He's like, okay, he's in the air fence. Find where the fucking these ones logically would go. He's not out of it yet. 
And he only survives because of sheer fucking luck that he somehow missed with a machine gun and then got called away before he could find him. Gotta give him a break somehow or else the movie would be over. Now, if this was me in this moment, you would just, Carl would have done that and then just sitting piss, like, trickling down from me, pissing my pants, like, that close to being shot. <laughs> as bad as Paul Blart Mall Cop is, I do have to say I love the, the subverting um, expectations with, like, him trying to go in the bed and it immediately collapses. It's like, oh, I thought that would have worked. And then this is great. It's a nice little detail where he cocks his pistol but tries making it as quiet as possible. Yo, know, and it's a great moment because he it's I've always read it as he knows I'm gonna fucking die here, but I'll at least be able to take one of them out with me. Mm-hmm. And this is great. Yeah, I remember people being like, why is his shirt dirty? They should have left that deleted scene. It's like, did you really fucking think his shirt wasn't going to get dirty crawling through a bed? Did we really need a fucking whole deleted scene from that? I'm glad they cut it out. I've seen it. Sucks. And this is great. Who's driving this car? Stevie Wonder. Also, one thing I noticed after watching this a million times is um, there's a continuity error here where when you see him throwing the chair through the window, camera quickly pans up to them on the roof. He's like two floors below it. But when you see him shooting the machine gun at um, Carl as he's ba- or Carl, um, Al as he's backing out, he's now on the fifth floor to make the shot work. So they cheated it a little bit. I did not notice that until I was in college. I actually remember when I first saw this, I was actually really worried for Carl Winslow if he was going to die or not here. Mm, That's a good point. I never thought of that. Yeah, he's meeting Huey Lewis. Most people would be excited to meet him, but he doesn't care. He's not a big fan of hip to be square. (laughs) This is just a moment of tension for all the terrorists because... Either he's going to find out or maybe die and jigs up or what. Yeah. This, this is as much of, of a tense scene for them as it is for McQueen. Yeah. Well, and again, you know, I was wondering, like, are they going to kill him? And that's how the police come. Like, he is able to radio in before he's killed. Like, in the great action movie, Olympus Has Fallen, where the, like, Secret Service agent is able to say, Olympus Has Fallen, and, like, then gets fucking shot. And so, see, we're, that's the roof. We're, like, two floors below it. Um, which even then that doesn't make sense because they established this as I think 431 um, and it's according to the poster 40 stories of sheer terror but you know it's one of those things where I'm fine with them cheating it to get the shots to get the layout of the building of oh they hear him breaking it send him down and then we need to get the shot of him shooting out the window so they understand it's John doing it and the, well the you don't care 
You don't care because you're so invested. Plus, this is meant to be for John to get the detonators. This is where everything changes for Hans. Yeah. No, I'm just like saying it's like uh, it's an interesting filmmaking thing that I notice. That's like, oh, I, I'm not mad at it. It's just something I noticed. It's like, oh, they cheated this. But it took me like, like I said, 20 times watching this movie before I finally noticed it. Um, I do also like that it doesn't show he's like immediately like a terrible co cop or whatever that he's like, you know, freeze motherfucker. Like, you know, like he's like, he's going to give him a fucking chance, but the guy refuses and he's like, okay, now I have to fucking kill you. And then this is great. And this is where Bruce Willis has now permanent hearing loss because of this scene. He um, forgot to put his ear um, plugs in and then shooting a gun that close to your head underneath a table where it's echoing um, caused him partial <coughs> hearing loss in his left ear. It's like two thirds, right? Yeah, I, I can't remember what it is, but it's like pretty bad. And that's why you see him like wincing. He's, he, he, you could tell he's like, ooh, that, that's louder than it normally should be. <laughs> um, yeah the, this is great you know i fucking love al just like singing these christmas songs to himself because he's like yeah my night's back to normal it's like whatever and it's like nope you are in a very different situation <laughs> yeah when, when i saw this and seeing carl winslow you know again i'd watch family matters a lot. i see him swearing it was like blowing my mind <laughs> Jesus, Jesus, Christ. Yeah, then you can see he's on the fifth floor, but again, you need the sh to see, like, oh, she's shooting out the window, and then welcome to the party, pal. Then I just love this visual gag. You see the body <laughs> flying off, Argyle just going on. <laughs> yeah, it's great because at that diehard experience I was at, so they had, um, an old 80s like LAPD cop car and then like an old 80s like Cadillac limo like that so on the 80s cop car they just had like a couple Twinkies just on the hood and then they had like a young guy who didn't even really look like our guy it was just like a young kid, guy like in his 20s it, it, it would be like oh hey you know Andrew you you, you kind of look like you know Jason Sudeikis right no not really well, you could be the stand-in for him. And, like, he was there to take photos with holding the McLean sign. And they had, like, the big bear. And they were playing the um, Christmas rap song on a boombox on a loop. And it was pretty funny. <laughs> yeah, Fox really pulled out all the stops for um, that screening. And it was great. Yeah, Twinkies really don't cost that much. Yeah. But for the rest of it. Though it was actually funny because when they started the movie because they, they were just using a blu-ray like they weren't playing it off of the film stock like negative or whatever they just had a blu-ray in the thing they fucked up and had it on the french like track <laughs> so it opens up with the guy being first time flying he's speaking french and jacob looks over at me and he's like wait wait are they speaking french in the beginning of the movie and like, people are like <laughs> laughing and i felt so bad for the projectionist because we're on the roof of the parking garage. It's not a projection booth. He's just sitting there amongst us, and we're all heckling him. It's like, oh my, I've never seen some poor intern shift uncomfortably in their seat before in my entire life. It was fucking horrifying for that poor kid. <laughs> um, and yeah, no, this is one of the best scenes of the movie. The introduction to Hans and John, audio-wise at least. You know, John gets a few more of his great quips here. You know, obviously we'll get to Yippee-Kaye, motherfucker, but he's now just antagonizing him. And again, to your whole point of 
Hans is the hero of his story. It's, you know, this is where the hero and villain meet on the reverse end, and this is where his plan's now really starting to fall apart because I've lost the detonators. I've, you know, more of my men are killed. You know, he's now downed, um, you know, two more, you know, two more of his henchmen and all that. This is not going according to plan whatsoever. And you can start seeing he's starting to get a little less cool and collective here. He's starting to alter the plan. Yeah. Like Carl said. Yes. And if he alters it. Pray I don't alter it more. I'm quoting Empire Strikes Back, but probably misquoting it because I haven't seen that one in a long time. Remember that? When Alan Rickman shoots Han Solo? No, I think uh, you're referring to the Trade Federation scene in episode two. Oh, yeah. And I meet with Young Dooku. And then Newt Gunray says, uh, says that line. Oh, you're right. Um, yeah. And then, and then here's it's Yippee Kaye, motherfucker. And it's actually funny how. That's become such a mainstay for the movies that it's weirdly included in every one of them when it doesn't contextually make sense for him to keep saying yippee-ki-yay, motherfucker. Um, it makes sense here because he's fucking around with a guy who's calling him a cowboy and all that. Um, but, yeah. Exactly. But um, it's funny that, like, it's this big iconic line, but he whispers it here, and then later Han says it in, like, broken German English. And it's, it's very weird that that's not the way you imagine that line being delivered now. It's it's almost like a Mandela effect. You imagine like him yelling it in this one, but it's, no, it's not. Well, that's because here it's actually organic to the story. It's it yeah. built into like the thematics of the movie. And the sequels, is just, it's just a simple one-liner and it becomes really diluted and pointless. But it's like, oh, well, he's, he's, he, has to, he has to say the one-liner. That's, that's his one-liner. But it's like, well, he doesn't. There's no reason for him to. Yeah, I mean, even though it's kind of like a badass moment almost in part four, and like it'll say on your gravestone, wrong place at the wrong time. How about yippee Kaye, mother? And then we have to censor it because it's PG 13, but still. That was really cool, actually. I did okay. like that's probably the best use of it in the sequels. Yeah. I do like that moment where then. Um, fucking his daughter's like really you shot yourself to get him it may it seemed like a good idea at the time per, that's, I, that, that's, yeah, a, that's a very that. mclean moment like for as much as he becomes borderline superhero in that one that one that felt like a very real it's like uh, i guess i have to shoot myself to get kill him yeah i actually love that i, I like the fourth diehard movie it's for what it is it's it's yeah, fun it's good I, I actually think i might put it over part two like i i i do yeah, I, I don't particularly like part two that much. I don't either. That That's just like classic classic sequel. It's just really just a rehash of this one, but nowhere near as good. Yeah, I mean, at least three is creative with um the brother and all that and the riddles and all that. Then you have Sam Jackson and then eh, four has, it's plenty of bad moments. I also fucking love where he like is like, they're in Kevin Smith's lair. He puts his hand over the camera. And it's like doing this, this, and this is like, John, putting your hand over the camera does not shut the microphone off. <laughs> it's, it's perfect because in a bad, a really bad movie that would work. So you're like, when I first watched that, I just like, okay, that's just blocking the sound out, whatever. You know, like I, I can accept that it's stupid movie logic, but the fact that the villain calls him out, he's like, no, we just heard your entire plan 
is perfect, and that's a very John McClane, like, oh, fuck. But yeah, no, here's where he's just like, all right, you guys are here. I'm just going to fucking sit in a corner and really hope no one comes by and bothers me. And there's an alternate version where he just fucking sits there for the rest of the night and no one finds him sitting in that one random corner of that one random floor. Yeah, it's scary. It's a scary situation. He's just one guy. <laughs> no, and I think that's what makes him, like, such a compelling character in this one is he's just a re regular beat cop that, like, has to do extraordinary things to fucking save the day. And he's just, like, like, he keeps getting dragged back, and he's fine, like, okay, letting LAPD do this, but then they're fucking upsetting the car, and then Hans is, you know, be like, no, 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 I'm gonna continue doing this. Like, okay, fuck you, I'm gonna get involved again. This is great. The fucking um, principal from, from what you call it, um, Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Um, oh fuck, I couldn't think of another. Planes, Trades, and Automobiles. Home Alone 3. Pretty in pink. Yeah. The cop on the on the left there talking to the radio, is uh, he's in Die Hard 3. Yeah, oh, I forgot. Yeah, he's, uh, my joke aside is he was um, the one other thing I know him from is um, Breakfast Club. He's the asshole principal in that. No, not this guy. In your in your VHS rip, um, the aspect ratio is cut off. So, on my screen, on my wide screen, I can. There's another cop next to oh. the principal. He's in Die Hard Three. Oh, I thought you meant the principal was in Die Hard Three. No, no. I'm like he is, and I was just gonna go along with it because I'm like, okay, I don't want to be proven wrong here on my own show. But oh fuck yeah, you're right. He is. Um... Wait, you're not watching my pan and scan version? No, I'm I'm watching it on my my modern TV. I don't know how you're staying in sync with your Amazon ads. Don't fuck this up for me. I'm in sync. Have there not been any ads yet? Or do you fast No, there have been. I've just been uh oh, fast forwarding. I've I've synced it up pretty well. Oh, that's pretty good for you. Um but anyways, <laughs> our, our format wars aside, um Back to this. Yeah, great moment here with Bonnie Vidalia having to take charge. It's a great line. Who put you in charge? Who's the idiot that put you in charge? You did when you shot my boss. It's a great moment with, um, you know, then, you know, her being, who are you? Holly Gennaro. And it's like, okay, that's where we get the payoff of she had to change her name and all that. So that's actually very, very clever that that protects her. That insulates her one more step away from you know, him knowing that she's the wife, she gives a sly look to the family photo. Not that it would matter at this point because he hasn't seen John, but again, very well crafted. Um, you know, 15 things going on in this one scene alone. Mm -hmm. But yeah, who knew that would turn into um, Jai Courtney and um, Mary Elizabeth Winstead in those photos? Can we, can we like, George Lucas this and like CGI child versions of them into this Irishman this like make them look younger Jake did the audio cut out is our zoom failing did you hear my great ideas um, so Walter Peck I actually didn't know this was the same guy when I watched Ghostbusters I was like oh he's a lot like the asshole in Die Hard yeah, no, Ghostbusters was my favorite movie. That and Back to the Future were my favorite movies growing up. So I'd seen Ghostbusters probably like 30 times by the time I saw this, and I didn't put it together until high school. 
that fucking goatee beard really does yeah. not here. Yep, it's the beard. But geez, I mean, talk about a guy who probably couldn't, probably got beaten up at bars. No, that he says, um, he's had two stories, told like that two stories. He's like, I've had drunk people pick fights with me in bars for fucking over John McClane of the Ghostbusters. And he's like, I hate Ghostbusters. And that's part of the reason he wasn't the second one, because he said he was walking down the streets of New York one day and one of those big tour buses came by. And like, oh, look, that's the guy who plays Walter Peck in Ghostbusters. Everyone, say it with me now. Yo, dickless. And he's like, hearing a bunch of tourists yell, yo, dickless, as I'm like, go after my coffee was not fun. <laughs> Poor bastard. It, it's like, I never get people like that who want to be mad at, like, people for, like, the fictional character they played. It's like, you know, you hear, like, I, Tom Felton got some shit for, like, yo, you helped kill Dumbledore. It's like, it's a fucking movie, guys. Dumbledore is not a real person. Okay, now I went to an ad. I'm watching a preview for HBO Max right now. Oh, shit. But then I look down at your screen and I see John McClane in a walkie-talkie talking to Carl Weathers. I've been saying his name joking back and forth between the different names, but wait, no, it's Carl Winslow in the um, show. Carl Weathers. Who are we? Who the fuck's Carl Weathers? That was the joke. Oh, wait, you, you're you combining him with the guy who plays Apollo Creed. Wait, his last name is Weathers? Winters? What the fuck is his name? I'm very tired and a little drunk right now. It's Winters. Winters, okay. Yeah, for context, when we're recording this, we're recording this on my birthday, and I'm on the East Coast, and Jake is on the West Coast, so we had to do this after work for him, so we went to dinner, and I had a few drinks, forgetting that I was going to do this, so I'm a little drunk right now. Happy birthday to me. I'm watching Die Hard. What could be better? No, watch, you're watching A Good Day to Die Hard. Oh, shit. This is Jai Courtney. I will admit, um, as bad as the later sequels get, I do like the name puns. Those are better than just Die Hard with a Vengeance or Die Harder. I will say that. Yeah. Um, I just like this like little moment. He's like, ah, fucking Thor. It's like, it just highlights these cops are idiots. And, like, they're not equipped for what they're about to go into. It's like, oh, a Thor. It's like, you're going in against terrorists. And then, yeah, this guy was in a lot of um, action movies from the era. He was popping up in a lot of stuff around then. This moment is one of the greatest moments in film history. Yeah, because this is exactly what we were all thinking <laughs> when we saw this shot. Yeah, I'm a fucking terrorist. I could steal a candy bar. But I, again, I just love he looks around like, should I be doing this? It's perfect. then this is great i love theo's you know going into the hole when he does uh the parody the um you know his version of night before christmas you know again tying this into being a christmas movie you know and that's thing people say oh is this a christmas movie? Oh, no it was it was released in july it's like well you know what 
for a long time, all the Halloween movies were being released in the summertime, too. And fuck it, we can play those at Halloween, so screw you, we're playing Die Hard at Christmas. I will say I also do have respect a little bit for the sequels that there's an alternate world where they keep really trying to bring Christmas into every single one. And other than part two and the deleted alternate ending for part three, they kind of drop the Christmas thing. So that's a, um, that's a one point I can give to the sequels that they didn't keep trying to force shit going down on Christmas every time. What a nightmare that would be for McQueen. <laughs> you just could he just gets like really emotionally distant that, that's the thing he just wouldn't be by the time you get to part five he's like holly lucy john jr what the fuck is the son's name i i can't remember jai courtney we're all gonna fucking rent a cabin we're gonna stay in it together we're gonna be fucking having guns pointed at every goddamn door we're not going anywhere <laughs> but dad i have a company no don't go to it Honey, I got a company. No, don't do it. But we're going to fly. No, don't do it. That would be his Christmas every fucking year. I think. I love he's eating a different candy bar now, by the way. He, he apparently eats several. Do you think they're going to do another Die Hard movie with Bruce Willis? God, I hope not. I think it could happen. It could. I mean. I don't know. Apparently he's like really obviously like that's the thing he's very difficult to work with and I don't know how much like money. The, I mean I know these movies are still making a shit ton of money but the, it's gotta be to the point where it's like now Disney it's like do we want to fucking keep going through the fucking headache of working with Bruce Willis and these big action movies when you know fucking a good day to die hard is like a fucking fart in the wind like no one fucking talks about that movie anymore. Yeah, that, that, that's a thing. I mean, the fact that Disney owns it now might, you know, might throw a wrench in things. That that might be the only thing where he's too too much of a prick for Disney want to work with. But I say that because you know the whole legacy sequel thing is is very in right now, bringing back like these beloved movies and everything, and with, with like these older actors. So I'm like, okay, could you do a movie with an older McLean? Because I feel like. Maybe a diehard, maybe I'm, maybe this is sacrilegious, but maybe a diehard sequel with an older McLean could work because he's older, so that kind of gives credence to the whole, you know, more vulnerable average guy sort of thing. But now that now that he's an older man, he's slower. That could that could be kind of interesting. I mean, you look at the soft reboots of like the 2018 Halloween, and you know, like other ones where it's like you know when we, we're gonna try and go back to basics and ignore the sequels you know I, it worked at the 2018 halloween in my opinion i don't really care for any time they keep trying to reset the timeline of the terminator but like it is interesting like you can do that you know the most recent terminator that was interesting having sarah connor be older and a little bit more you know not with it now yeah she's still doing shit in that movie that i don't think a woman of her age um realistically would do and it did get a little ridiculous but i think it could work um part of me would want to be like just ignore everything from like die hard to, i cut, cut the rest of them out and just it's a sequel direct sequel to die hard where he's just a normal cop for the past 40 years he after this was over he went back to being with holly and that was it as much as i love the other diehards maybe just fucking reset the timeline completely i always felt you know that movie 16 blocks that came out many years ago 
I saw that. I'm like, that's a great Die Hard sequel. See, see that exactly. That that's that's how you put McClane in a situation where here's this cop quest to escort this guy, and then along the way, all these people are trying to stop him. Like that that could work for a Die Hard movie. Yeah, no, because and that's the thing. It's like he gotta be trapped, kind of in a sense. So in the I, in the case of that like, oh well, you're in the city and all that you're not really trapped but it's like yeah you are because you're being hemmed in by like cops and like you have to you're being hemmed in and all that because when you look at the best diehard is this one where it's like he's in an office building that he can physically not leave versus part two okay he's in an airport you know a little bit bigger area third one he's in the entirety of new york city fourth one he's just in the fucking u.s everywhere and then the fifth one he's all across russia at least i will give the fifth one credit that's like they have the Russian mob after them, and they're like person persona non grata or grata with the, like the U.S. and the Russian governments because they think they're turncoats. That at least that gave a thing where it's like you are fucking outnumbered and trapped basically like a rat. Mm-hmm. Like McLean is a fucking rat in a maze here. And I love this. Yeah, Yo. trying to help the situation. I mean, shit. He throws a fucking C four down the elevator shaft almost blows up the then yeah all fucking gets incinerated almost because he's never used explosives that i love this they're using artillery on us and hans very calmly being like god damn it he's still fucking <laughs> he's still fucking with us <laughs> you know there's like the split second moment he had in his mind where he's like i shouldn't have antagonized him that's on me that's on me um, no, that, I mean, that's just a great moment. He's like, I'll take this under advisement, jerk weed, and then this is great. Tell me you got that on camera. You know, Th- Thorndike, Thornburg, whatever the fuck his name is, um, is just so <laughs> great. What is his name? Thornburg? Thornburg? <laughs> uh, Thor, yeah. Dinkelberg? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, my pan and scan, they're fucking cutting off this reporter's face to get her on screen. Yeah, the, the pan and scan, Hans Gruber looks like Chuck Norris. <laughs> to explain to the audience, I usually like us watching the movie on one device, so we're all synced up and all that. And I couldn't rip my DVD because um, I don't have the software on my computer right now, and I ran out of time to do it. And you can't play it through VLC on my laptop for some reason because it's just annoyance. And I just found on the internet archive, someone put up their VHS rip of Die Hard, which makes no sense. Like, why would you want to preserve that? Like, it didn't even have the commercials or anything. It just, like, opened up and it was the movie. It's like, what? what's the point of preserving this? I know there's weirdos out there that collect VHSs and they're like, oh, I gotta watch all my movies on VHS. You're fucking weird. You hear me? You're fucking weird, people who Plus. are listening to my podcast. I know Plus. I collect them. Aren't you a little weird for going to IMDb and choosing to watch the VHS rip instead of living in the 21st century and checking if if a popular movie is streaming? Again, right now it's on Amazon Prime ads and I got a little worried we'd get desynced, but yes. I think we would have figured it out. You know what? Maybe we wouldn't have and it wouldn't have been nearly as funny. I find this humorous. It's like when we were watching Planes, Trains, and Automobiles on Jacob's old TV and it had the hellish colors. Do you remember that? Oh, yeah. No, that was, it was great. Blue and red. It was like fucking a nightmare. It was even worse when we're in an apartment with no furniture. <laughs> yeah, we're sitting on the old couch, shoulder to shoulder on a like 15 inch TV. 
that like you guys got for free from Andy. Uh, good times. We're we're moving up in the world. We have actual because that was back like we didn't even have microphones. We just put my laptop in front of us. I just like recorded in quick time. Those those old ones sound like shit. Um, yeah, this is this is great. Like everything's just falling apart. Hans can't keep his henchman in control. Ellis is trying to come in here to negotiate with him, really underestimating how much of an evil person he is. It's great. I like Fabio in the background here. They all look like Fabio. You know what? Maybe maybe the Germans were right. Maybe they are better than all of us. They're all very beautiful people. Minus um <laughs> minus Vigo. Vigo's the only ugly henchman in this. Vigo and Huey Lewis are the only ugly henchmen in this one. Yeah, Huey Lewis isn't German. Eh, Carl's not that great looking either. Okay, half of them. All right, we're going to go down the rankability of the hotness of the Hans Gruber villains. Okay, so Fabio, one. Him. I was going to say Richard Carpenter um, was the second best looking. Ah, really uh, yes, Richard like Carpenter. Do you, do you A regular Casanova. Do you remember? Do you even know which terrorist I'm making that joke comparison to? Does anyone know what Richard Carpenter looks like besides me and my grandparents? I'm going to put it up on the screen. He was the first terrorist that McLean kills, Carl's brother. Uh, Richard Carpenter, by the way, married his cousin. That's pretty fucking weird. So anyways, this is just going to be now me talking about the Carpenters for the rest of this commentary. Fun fact about Karen Carpenter. Uh, joking aside, this is a great scene between McLean and Al. Um, such a great, you know, interaction between these two guys. And, like, they don't even get to share the screen until, like, the last 30 seconds of the movie. Like, talk about, like... Just great directing on um, Nick Tiernan's part that, like, you get a great performance out of these two guys and make them feel like they're bonding. And then a very real moment where he's like, I might not get out of this. Versus McLean now is like, yeah, I'm going to get out of it because I'm fucking John McLean. No one can kill me. And going back to your metaphor of the hero and villain, this is when the switching where you know gruber is the hero of his own story he's like ah this is where i finally get a leg up on my antagonist i mean this comes almost at the mark where you when you look at it like this is probably like the percentage way through where you know in nightmare on elm street they learn about you know nancy learns about who freddy krueger really is you know um trying to think of other you know die hard three this is around the you know percentage point where he finds out about um his brother being hans Yeah, then this is great with um, with Ellis, even though he's a sleazeball, like, fucking John over inadvertently. He's at least smart enough to know not to give up Polly. That That's the one right thing he does here is by pretending to be his friend. And obviously Hans sees through it immediately. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's, it's just, just such a great tense scene because 
everyone, including the audience, knows what's going to happen, but Ellis doesn't because he thinks he's that charming and has overestimated his skills as a negotiator so much here. He's gotten himself really at the deep end. Is this this thing where he asked for cocaine and he said Coke and they misunderstood it as Coca-Cola? I think that's a joke I've heard people say, and I never thought about that until Cinema Sins. They made that joke in the review. It's like that's a different type of coke than Ellis wants, and I I do wonder if that is the supposed to be the joke. I mean, it's probably not. They probably just gave him a coke just to show that they're quote unquote accommodating him. Yeah. I mean, it also is a great moment where he kind of, like, fucks up. He's like, eh, you know, and then takes a sip of the Coke, like, thinking, like, eh, I tried. And, like, I think that's, like, the moment where Ellis is like, oh, I, um, this did not go according to plan. That El- yeah, because you can tell Ellis did a bunch of Coke before he came in. You see him putting his thing away and sniffing. So he did, like, a bump of Coke and thought, this is a great idea. This is Cokehead energy 80s business guy logic. The only way this could have been any more 80s if, is if he asked for a tab. Mm-hmm. Well, then he would have been, he would have deserved to get shot. Yeah, yeah. it's th- this face he starts making here is when he's realizing this is unraveling his plan and he's trying to be calm and cool, still joking, but it's like you can kind of see it in his eyes. He's like, oh, fuck. And then got shot in the head. Now we'll see if my pan and scan picks this up. I never noticed when he talks to me. You can actually see a little bit through his head. It's actually a pretty cool effect. When he sits back down and you see Ellis's body, you can kind of vaguely see through his head. Not necessary for the movie, but just a nice little touch. Yeah, this is where the pressure's mounting for McLean. Where the more he hides, the more dangerous it gets for people down there. Yeah. Yeah, that's. I mean, even though he alludes to that other cops are supposedly on his side, which I've always actually wondered, was Carl lying to him to make him feel better? That like all the other cops are like, yeah, fuck it, what? like they either are ambivalent or actively don't like him because like he's fucking this up. They agree with the captain. But it's like, yeah, you know, he's clearly outnumbered. Even the people on the ground are starting to turn on him a little bit. Mm-hmm. You know, for a long time, I actually confused this guy for the police chief in The Mask as well. The guy who was in um, Animal House. And I rewatched The Mask. I'm like, oh, no, that's the guy from Animal House, not the guy from Die Hard. <laughs> he was playing a similar cop, though, I guess. We should watch The Mask. Great movie. Or watch Mask with Cher. You know, some like poor bastard, like some dad in the 90s at Blockbuster rented the wrong movie for (laughs) much different nights. Yeah, you can see here, like, as it goes through a little bit of through his head. Um, Not much, but yeah. I mean, did you notice it on your pan and scan? I can see it a little bit, but. well, fuck it. real hard yeah yeah uh now that that was the fun thing with oh yeah i love that ethan dong is like i read about him in time magazine 
that again this is just his plan he's like yeah make him think i'm a terrorist and all that just list off a bunch of shit that they'll be racing around the ground to try and figure out while we it buys us a little bit more time it's perfect mm-hmm. um And again, that goes back to my thing. He has to pretend to be a terrorist so the FBI shows up. Now you could say the FBI would show up for like a huge hostage situation with terror, you know, huge gunmen like this um, potentially, but they definitely would show up for terrorism. But yeah, and I love um, as we get into it, the viewpoint on the cops gets one level more dumb when the FBI guys come in. They're just really callous dickheads, and they're both just named Agent Johnson to be like faceless goons. Oh, perfect wonderful. which i also love in die hard four the three die hards that he meets another fbi agent named agent johnson <laughs> this is great you can go hunting him mclean feels bad you know this is something you wouldn't see in the new die hards you know he's kind of just become very hardened to death now i mean when you watch the fifth diary, he's just driving over people, poor Russian civilians in traffic. It's like he's killed a couple people in that, right? Like there's several innocent people he just casually killed and we're just moving on. But here he feels bad. It's real. Yeah. No, you're right. It's, you know, for you bring up a good point with these diehard sequels trying to emulate the greatness of the first. There's a reason why the first is so great. And it's it's stuff like this. Because it's a guy just trapped in this extraordinary situation. So things like this are just going to happen where he's kind of just waiting around and he's a lot more vulnerable. He's not shooting his gun all the time. Exactly. I love this. He fucks it up. You know, cheesy reporter. Director looks embarrassed for everyone. It's perfect. Yeah, and, that, and that's yeah, and I love like the juxtaposition, juxtapositions like, and the hostages come to like care for their captives and all that. And I know Stockholm syndrome is obviously a real thing, but it's funny that like it further highlights that these guys are just thugs. That's like, yeah, we're gonna kill these guys, and who cares? It just how these people have no fucking clue what's going on in there. Really, it's all just academic. Yeah. No, I mean, it, it's it's great, and that, again, goes to the whole thing, that, like, Hans was able to predict all the fucking pissing contest on the ground. I mean, again, not to get too fucking real, but that's why 9-11 happened. No agency wanted to work with each other, so it's a very real commentary on how a lot of agencies were that the LAPD didn't like the feds coming in. The feds were like, okay, thanks a lot, guys, you know, and how condescending the one Agent Johnson is saying, oh, if we need to commandeer your men, we'll, we'll try and let you know. And then this is just perfect, and I'm so glad they, on like the spur of the moment, decide to include this interaction with him and John. It's great. Um, you need at least one scene between them before yeah. before the end of the movie. And it just shows how clever Hans is that he immediately slips into this you know Californian accent. How clever he is. And then we find, oh, ho, the clever villain isn't so clever because McLean at some point saw through it. It's, um, you know, debatable at what point that McLean realized he was really a terrorist. Um, you know, there was a whole deleted subplot where he knew, noticed that all the terrorists were wearing certain watches that there was going to be a 
thing where Hans is like, okay, let's synchronize our watches when they were all wearing a distinct watch and he notices Hans is wearing it. Uh, some people have just, you know, thought that, you know, he is just like suspicious. Like these, no one could have gotten out of here. You know, you must not be on the level. And even if you are on the level, I'm not going to risk it by giving you a gun. You know, the zooming in on the name where he sees, you know, Bill Campbell is just a or Bill Clay is just a name he sees right behind him. You know, any one of those works, but it's just a great moment where, in the end, John is smarter than Hans is in this moment. He saw through the ruse at some point. It doesn't matter mm-hmm. when, but he saw through it. It's the old adage um, Hitchcock says about suspense in a movie that you know there's a bomb under the table while two people are talking about baseball but they don't know the bombs under the table so like oh my god he's talking about pink ball with this guy and making jokes and all that and john doesn't know it's like no john knows he's on top of it 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 surprises the audience it's great god this really is washed out of my pan and scan yeah looks like fucking daylight on yours looks like the sun is coming up um yeah just get this on blu-ray or watch it on amazon folks just pause the commentary if you're watching on amazon with ads i guess or just buy the movie it's great god i want to start smoking because of this movie so when you come back, why don't you just start chain-smoking European-branded cigarettes? That's, that, that people are like, well, what habit did you pick up in quarantine smoking? <laughs> I'm actually disappointed. I'm missing my company's holiday party. They're like, we're finally doing shit again. I'm like, oh, crap, I'm out of town, guys. But yeah, quarantine was when I decided to start smoking. I mean, I, I'm sure a lot of people picked up smoking during the quarantine, or especially in the early days. Well, a lot of smoke alarms going off. Or... or people vaping. Mm. Yeah, I always just, my personal headcanon was, he, he noticed the Bill Clay was on the directory and knew that this floor was empty. That this is what, you know, this isn't all Nakatomi, like other floor spaces are for different companies and that these people are now gone. So that's why he knows. He sees William Clay up there and knows, okay, he's fucking lying to me. Yeah, that's what I thought too, how he figures it out. Like I said, it could be either thing. It could be the deleted watch explanation or he's just fucking smart. And he's like, you know, this is not the way this is going. There's something off about this. Mm-hmm. great i also i like the reminder that he's not wearing shoes because we've potentially forgotten that it's been so Mm -hmm. long since it was referenced him not wearing shoes yeah supposedly in poland again i don't know how true this is but supposedly in poland this movie is called the man who walks on glass and that's what all the sequels are called as like i don't know if that's true i can't speak polish and i don't know any polish people to ask and looking at my viewership numbers on YouTube, it point zero zero percent come from Poland, so I can't ask any of the fans who watch this. But I want that to be true because that sequel name makes zero sense. 
for the rest of the movies. And again, I will give credit to the sequels. They didn't force that element in either. Like, there could be a shitty universe where all, every Die Hard movie finds him barefoot somehow. Yeah, yeah, you, you don't go in that direction. But you, again, you could do like a really great Die Hard sequel that stays true to this movie. But again, that's why I go back to that 16 blocks idea where it's more like a day in the life of a cop. And I think that's probably what you do for a John McClane sequel. Yeah, I I will say I think of all the sequels, the fifth one is the most egregious with references. Oh, Fabio, um, egregious with the references to the um, first one. I mean, yeah, they all say yippee ki yay, motherfucker, and Agent Johnson, and you know, part two, you know, fucking has you know, you have Carl in it again, you have you know, fucking Thornburg in it again, and oh god, I fucking hate that Jello fucking shooting out that guy's legs. Um, that that's why that i mean this whole sequence with the broken glass is like the worst fucking part of this movie for me to watch i fucking hate it i mean it's so bad as but oh god it hurts but actually you know what i'm wrong about like i'm right and i'm wrong about bringing back dire because if they just did die hard they brought it back it would just be like the first movie they would do the exact same thing we're bringing it back to the spirit of the original John McClane is a real guy trapped in a building. You you don't need to do it trapped in a building. I think just that sensibility of he's a real guy and it being like, I mean, basically just do 16 blocks, but it's John McClane. Yeah, they wouldn't do that. They would just do this the exact same thing. Yeah, so you're, you're then going too far in the other direction. Um, no, but and again, that goes to highlight like how just real of a guy he is. The, the most fucked up he gets in this movie is from stepping on broken glass mm-hmm. you know and it's like as all of us would he's get he's gone through a lot of fucking shit and then having huge chunks of glass in your feet is not great for you and it's like that almost does him in you would not see that in a modern action movie i mean he goes through a lot worse shit in the sequels comparatively and it's fine like he shoots himself at the end of part four and then walks away from it he's like ah you got the shoulder it's like you're like 70 man you're like in your mid-60s and you just shot yourself you don't walk away in a freeze frame and then this is great the detonator is back he's happy but carl is still pissed off this is when we really see that he's lost complete control of carl that like any cool businessman like demeanor with hans is going out the window i also always think this is kathy najimi the um voice of peggy hill and the heavy set witch from um hocus pocus anytime i watch this movie and i know it's not her jake did your audio cut out again why aren't you talking about hocus pocus with me Did my pan and scan freeze? No, I'm just watching the movie. I'm so absorbed into the movie, even when it's on mute. Um, And this is great. (laughs) Sees a really pissed off guy. He's alive. Only John can make someone that pissed. It's a funny line, and then it's a great way. It is a good signifier to her that John is still around. Yes. 
Also, I want to know what the fuck happened to this bathroom. What were the fucking Nakatomi Plaza janitors doing here? It's fucking disgusting in here. There's newspapers everywhere. They were slacking on the job. Um, yeah, no, this is fucking horrifying. And when I moved from my last apartment, I accidentally did step on broken glass and didn't realize it for like a couple days. So that was my joke to um, a lot of my friends was John McClane's got nothing on me. I had glass in my foot while I was moving apartments and didn't notice it. I will say, admittedly, it was a very small piece. It wasn't anything like this. I don't think I could ignore something like this. <laughs> this was this was me in my apartment for apartment the first night just digging shards of glass out of my foot. Like, how did I not notice this for forty eight hours? Then this is great. We get Carl's backstory, Al's backstory here. And I know everyone's done the joke that he shot Urkel. That's <laughs> a joke. No, that, that, that's a joke people have made. Like I remember the nostalgia critic did it. Like he cut it together. It's like I shot a kid, and like it then shows like a picture of him being like a clip of him being really pissed off at Urkel from the show, and then gunshot sound effects. Uh, other people have done it, but um, that's great. It's it's a very like when you strip away the joke of it, us knowing he played the TV cop dad in the Urkel show. It's a very moving scene. And it's, um, you know, it plays really into the part of, I, you know, I was on desk duty, I'm not a street cop anymore, and he works his courage up to shoot the guy at the end of the movie. Yeah, it's very simple, but it works. I mean, I... Showed, what you need. Yeah, I showed this movie to someone in high school, and this was so solid, they actually kind of almost forgot about it being his arc when they got to the end. Like, oh, yeah, like, it's not hitting you over the head. It's such a natural moment that it almost works out, you know, to its detriment, almost, in that sense. That's just how well done it is. I mean, I don't think I I knew going on what, what the whole motive was and all that, um, and the arc, but at least in my one friend's experience, it wasn't. Yeah. But great little great. payoff yeah and this is great theo doesn't realize it's the fbi um and again it shows you i get you know again that's the thing i've seen some people complain against again going to pat oswald making his joke he's like wow like these guys didn't you know hans didn't tell him what the plan was for the electro security lock like including his tech guy that they all just signed on this but it's like i think that also shows how you know compelling hans is and how um suave he is that you don't they don't even need to know everything for the plan they just trust hans inherently well he even says that earlier that's like his explanation trust me because that's how they ask when theo asks how do we get through the to that door and hans says trust me yeah oh, this yep. is the guy from um groundhog day in the burbs he's but, but this is part of hans's plan right they needed to get the fbi to show up and call this cause all this hubbub to, to shut this down yeah because so that was the only way it could open yeah because if this was just a bank hostage situation they wouldn't shut this off but he's smart enough to know i gotta make this look like a terrorist attack where the fbi would do this and he studied the handbook and you know as carl says when as fucking al says when he's talking to johnny he's like they're playing the universal terrorist playbook step by step yeah okay so hans knew that the only way they could shut the power off was through FBI influence, not through the city. Yeah. Oh, that's brilliant. Yeah, it just 
It's just great. Yeah, so that that you know that was not a flaw I was referring to at the beginning. It is just so well thought of that just shows you how much of a genius you know Hans Gruber is that had fucking McLean not been to this party or had they come ten minutes later when he was done washing up, they would have gotten away with it. And then this is just great that even though he's wounded and trying to hold up again, he, you know, he's like thinking in the wheels in his head. He's like, what, like, what is his plan here? Why was he up on the roof? Like, what is Hans planning here? And then this is great. I heard that, um, they wanted to use, um, this in this, the, um, movie and then the, um, composer's like no you can't this is a beautiful piece of music you can't use this for an action movie and they're like but you know beautiful music like this is used in um clockwork orange and you really like that movie and then he's like ah oh, god damn it you're right and okay we can use it <laughs> yeah i mean i don't care who the fuck wrote this originally what its purpose was this is diehard music now yeah <laughs> And then, yeah, I love how this shit wouldn't have gone down really bad if, um, you know, had Thornburg not been a dickhead and gone to his fucking house to interview the kids for a fucking tabloid news story. Jo- you know, Holly would have been completely safe and the uh, stakes would have been completely different here. Also, isn't this guy like a villain in, a, in one of the um, Bond movies? The Timothy Dalton yes. one? Yes, Living he's Daylights. the... No, it's License to Kill. Okay. It's a good movie. Good Bond movie. I've appreciated that more in the years. I've never seen the Dalton ones all the way through. I'd like to rewatch those. Oh, Dalton is my third favorite Bond. But that's a discussion for another time. Yeah. Going back to Mask, I also got him confused with the main villain of Mask for some reason. I don't know why I got diehard characters and Mask characters confused. Uh, I can see why you get the, the Mask villain confused with this guy right here. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I will say I hadn't watched Mask in a long time, and then I rewatched him. I'm like, okay, it was one of those vague memory things. Um, and then, oh, God, like this is just fucking terrible. Mm-hmm. And again, how realistic is this? He's just like, I am fucking done. That's actually one of my favorite elements of the NES game is you have your health, you actually have your like health from getting shot at and you have foot power that like you can run, but then you go slow. So like it's two different staminas and there's parts of the game where like you will be on a floor of broken glass and that'll make it worse. So... I fucking just love the NES game. I know most people hate it, but it's great. Play it if you can. And this scene right here, this is where uh, McLean really owns up to the fact that he fucked up with Holly. Yeah. No, he's It's just great, and you don't see this really with the sequels where it's like he acknowledges... It, it's One, he's a real person. He's sweating his ass off because he's in such fucking pain from this situation and he thinks he's going to die and he's trying to fucking make up for what he's done wrong mm-hmm. versus live three or die hard i think he just killed maggie q with a car and is quipping now and good day to die hard i think they just jumped in a pool in chernobyl maybe that's why we can't get a six die hard movie because him and jai courtney died of cancer six months later see you have the six movie take place in a hospital McLean is there. 
it's really hard for it's just like you know what we just did this with ghostbusters afterlife with you know jason reitman doing like a you know slow moving emotional ghostbusters fuck it die hard insert different thing here it's just a slow moving drama about mclean dying of cancer from his adventures in russia and trying to reconnect with his family as he's dying no gunfights just like this is bruce willis going for his oscar which no offense to modern day bruce willis i think bruce willis in the 80s could pull that subtlety off i don't think he could do that now no he's just a blunt instrument now This is great. You see just how much of a sleaze bag Thornburg is here. Yeah, no wonder why everyone fucking hated him in the 80s. I will say that Walter Peck is the hero of Ghostbusters when you really look at it. He's completely rational, being like, hey, you guys are like firing off like nuclear accelerators in downtown Manhattan. Um, can we look into that? And then this is great. His curiosity of like, or his suspicions of what the fuck were you doing up there? He's like, I got to go look into this. And it's a good reason to get him up there to get caught. Yeah. I just want to know what the fuck is going up here. I don't think steam should be coming out of these vents like that. There's gotta be something going on up here besides the C4. Yeah, even with the mutant pan and scan on engrossed in this as well. Mm -hmm. This is the one part of the movie I call bullshit on because they would have had to get to LAX from there. There's no way those FPI guys got to LAX that quickly. I don't care if it's Christmas Eve in the 80s. There's fucking three hours of traffic still. Oh god, I just thought of a crossover between this and planes, trains, and automobiles. I don't know what that would be like, but just imagine John McClane as the Steve Martin character in that. <laughs> John Candy's helping him as like terrorists are shooting at just imagine that scene on them on the freeway. John Candy would go like, ah it's like the terrorists are shooting at them. That's such a great shot. With like the light like refracting behind him and all yeah. that. lens flaring kind of and this is great he puts two and two together perfect reveal she's it, she is deeply fucked and that's the perfect way you know, i mean there could be an alternate version where he just takes her because he's been dealing with her anyways, but this now makes it the extra person. He's like, McLean, I got your wife. Yep. This is what he wanted to avoid from the start. And this is yeah. how he perfectly set up the reconciliation by getting them together. Yeah, and again, you know that um, Hans was smart enough to know that Ellis was lying to him, 
that. He's like, okay, you you know someone here, but it's clearly not this guy. He's like, I'll find the one you're with some at some point. So he was already suspicious. Like, which one of them knows John? And then there you go. Yep. I love this helicopter scene. It's so well shot. Great score by Michael Kamen here. Uh, fucking banter with these guys. Yeah, it was a junior high dickhead. Yes. And then um, just shows you how callous the FBI guys are. And this is like, yeah, we can lose 20, 25%. I can live with that. Like, just like, yeah. So just like, whatever. They don't give a shit about the hostages, which I oh think is an unfair portrait. I, I can't believe they did. Like, that clearly was a real shot. That's not special effects. They had to fly those helicopters in low. It's so great. Uh... I mean, after the Twilight Zone movie, we had to stop using helicopters in dangerous ways like that for a while. But um, when you can do it and it goes well, it looks great. Oh, uh, yeah, I love this. He tries taunting McLean <laughs> like he can't do it. So even his like taunting villain speech is getting preempted because he's lost control of his own henchmen. Sometimes I forget McLean yeah, I mean that, that's a lot of fucking blood. I mean, he like that is the only re the only reason why the interaction with Hans at the end is at all like even. It's because he's gotten the sh ever loving shit kicked out of him, shot, can't move that well because of all the fucking glass in his feet, and is out of bullets. Because re in reality, John McClane could beat the ever loving shit out of Alan Rickman. Like, even though he's gotten his hands dirty and killed a bunch of people, you know he's not the brawler type. No. But again, and you don't you don't mind it. Like, part of you could be like, oh, they had to really weaken him to go up against the villain. The henchman's much more powerful than the main villain. It's like, you know what? I'm fine with that, though. Because that's how a guy like Hans would operate. He's like, hey, I'm the fucking brains of the operation. Let me get the muscle here. Yeah, this, this was an area that I remember when they showed, like, people on the a diehard experience the night thing. They were in this area. So, like, this is apparently, like, really in the Fox building. Which I would have thought, no way in hell, because it's like, that's a lot of fucking space for, like, just, what? Like, it's empty in there. Like, that feels like that's a, that's a thing you see in a movie where it's like, it's like in war games where they talk about where, um when they have the war room in war games, it's like, you know, Norad's like, yeah, no, we didn't fucking build that big of an elaborate room. That's like, it feels like it's a movie thing. It's like, what is this space actually used for? And it's like, no, apparently it is. Hmm. Yeah. Imagine living in this area, how much of an annoyance it had to be while this movie was going on. Like you're buying, it's like, Oh, I'm in the bougie sit part of LA and all that fancy high rise and all that. It's like fucking John McClane or Bruce Willis movie where explosions are happening Fucking helicopters flying around. It's like the Beatles documentary when they're on the rooftop and everyone's looking up and they call the cops. Is this really necessary? Yeah. Well, and actually, apparently, like when um, when Fox is trying to do that. Now, I don't know. I go back and forth whether this was something to hype us up. But they said that they had a problem with one of the tenants in the building next door on the penthouse level. So, like, um, kind of a big muckety-muck when they had to get permission to show the movie. 
He's like, I don't want, you know, a movie being shown down there and people being loud and all of that. And it's like, you know, part of me can buy that. But at the same time, I think they were hyping us up because they added us all saying, they're like, I want you to all look up at that building and yell, yippee ki yay motherfucker, to, like, kind of get us all jazzed up before the movie started. But, um, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I'm, I'm running out of things to just say because this is just such a badass part. Of the, like, it's just pure, unadulterated, like, testosterone levels badassery for the rest of the movie. Well, yeah, sorry, I want to split ends because we're getting, we're getting to the end here. And this is just great. I love his, like, it goes into this fear of flying, which is kind of tied to a fear of heights. It's like, I, if you, I get through this, I swear to God, I will never go in another building, a tall building again. It's a perfect thing. Actually, that's good. Yeah, because if uh, if if they made a sequel, they would have contradicted that if he went into another tall building. I will say I do like the um, progression of McLean that he's taking like flying lessons in the later ones to get over his fear of flying and all that. Mm-hmm. So it it's nice little character growth that allows you to do the shit you need to do because. You know, he can't take the Amtrak in part four to, like, go to different parts. And then this is just fucking beautiful. Even on my pan and scan, it looks great. Yeah, if this doesn't give you fucking vertigo, I don't know what will. It's like they had to fucking set off like real fireball explosions off the roof of this fucking building. It's crazy. And then this just look on his face when he's like, oh, thank God. I'm making breath of relief. And then nope, you're, you're nope. still not uh, out of it. Oh my God. It's just a great escalation. It's just all so organic and situational. Yeah. It's not just so over the top and just there for the sake of it. Just John has to get out of this bad situation. It keeps getting worse for him. That's where that's where the suspense and action comes in. So that face he just makes, I always, whenever I watch this and then vice versa with Mars attacks, I always just think of Nicholson in the war room. <laughs> He's just like looking at everyone, being like killed, and like is looking like really frazzled. <laughs> <laughs> I love the look Nicholson makes when, like, he sees the like Secret Service agent kill. It's like, no, no. <laughs> oh, there goes the FBI guys. Yeah, we're gonna need a few more FBI guys, or no, a couple other more FBI guys, or however he says it. Now, Jake, do your Nicholson impression. Say, Maurice, get out of there. <laughs> Maurice, get out of the room. Get out now. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah, I just love this. Then the elevator explodes for no reason. He's just like, Jesus Christ. Like He's like, what the fuck is going on? He's just so overwhelmed. The Christmas tree falls over. It's just perfect. Everything is going to shit here. Yeah, I think my one fix for this is when I made the joke earlier, hey, the ambulance isn't in the back of the thing, and that wouldn't have helped all of them is. They should have just, like, shown, like, them fucking quickly, like, fucking bringing down a thing, a shade on the side, or slide on the side of the van just says SWAT or whatever, and they turned the van they came into from a catering van to a SWAT truck, and then that gets rid of the problem, and they obviously all can fit in there. But 
That's just my one thing. And then there you notice he's out of bullets of the machine gun. As we see, he's only got fucking two bullets left in his pistol, and that's it. And he's got to make those two bullets count. Mm-hmm. And again, that's something you don't see in action movies. They, they never play into the fact that, oh, there is real ammo limitations here. You're going to run out at some point. Which I will say is one of my favorite lines. And I can't remember if it's Tremors or one of the Tremors sequels when Michael Gross shows up. And he's like, for the first time in my life, I am out of ammunition. <laughs> it just, like, lists <laughs> off the badass. I think it's, like, the second one. He lists off the badass adventure that happened to him off screen. <laughs> and he's like, I, he's like, I ran out of this ammo. I ran out of that ammo. It's perfect. We should do a Tremors, like, video. That just sums up, like, early 2000s. I mean, those were playing on TV all the time, and I fucking love them. It was, yeah. But back to Die Hard. Uh, yeah, that, that guy he knocked out is the only other henchman who survives. Mm-hmm. This is just a metaphor for what the Die Hard franchise looks like now. You start off, it's nice, clean cut, great, great, and then you're like, oh, it's all beaten up, battered to hell. Huey Lewis is looking to get his hands dirty. How it started versus how it's been going. Yeah. This is beginning of 2020, 2021. <laughs> I love, I don't know if it's real or not. I love someone supposedly got tattooed on their back. I've seen a couple times in there that got tattooed on their back, a pistol with the holiday tape on it in the location McLean has. And it's like, if I ever wanted a tattoo, I think that's what I would get. It's, it's a cool look. Like, I don't know if it's a true thing. I'm not, you know, anything can be photoshopped these days, but it's a great design. I'll see if I can find it, and I'll put it up on screen for the um, YouTube version. I love this, even him quipping now about Gary Cooper, you know, with the cowboy movie, and he's just like, okay, enough. And then, yeah, the last time we hear yippee ki motherfucker in this, and it's delivered very stilted. Mm-hmm. I'm actually surprised Happy Trails' bad guy name didn't become bigger than that, potentially, because I that's the one line that's delivered more in a badass, typical action movie way than this one, arguably. Perfect. Uh, I guess it's not hip to be square now. Huey. But yeah, no, in the book version, yeah, in the book version, this is where she gets pulled out because of the watch representing her greed. Jesus. Yeah, it's the literal physical manifestation of her greed and corruption kills her. Uh, No, and this is just great. I fucking love it. You know, we'll drop you on three and then they drop them on two to get the surprise. Mm -hmm. There goes a legend. And they fucking directly did this in Die Hard 5. And it sucks. Oh, they did? 
Yeah, when he throws the um, bad guy off like the helicopter, they do that thing like slow mo. Um, you know him falling out like that. He makes the same look on his face. The the like like I said, all of them are pretty egregious with references, particularly part two. But like, even though I'm not a huge fan of part two, it's a lot better than part five. Part five has a lot of that. Like he says, shoot the glass and like shit like mm. that and. A lot of shit like that. I don't know. It, maybe because I hate the fifth one so much. It's more egregious. But yeah, I'll have to put that up on screen if I could find it. I'm not going to fucking pay for the movie. I'll see if I can find the VHS rip for Die Hard 5. Jesus <laughs> great. Like a fucking war zone outside the 20th Century Fox building. You know, and th this is not a nice thing that, again, you would not see in the Die Hard sequels where John McClane is the one to take down the last bad guy. Yeah. No way you would see that now. I mean, I can't imagine a Rambo movie where, you know, fucking the Colonel takes out the last bad guy of the movie. Yeah. I mean, it, it would be like T2 ending with John Connor taking out the T-1000. It, it would feel like it could be thematic you know thematically here it makes sense and again it's just like it's a real moment of he's an injured guy right now and there's a bunch of able-bodied cops down here it makes sense but you wouldn't see that restraint now no you wouldn't then this is just great you know yeah you could say carl was able to damn it al was able to pick mclean out because yeah he looks all battered to hell and all that but like that there's the kindred spirit that he immediately knows oh that's the guy that's my buddy that's who i was talking to and that's the um thing that they've never been able to really top i love sam jackson in part three but like they've never been able to get the camaraderie right between him and his um sidekicks again no i i will say though the, the Sam Jackson pairing in the third is fucking great for, for what, like, it's very different. I like how it's not like, yeah. Um, Al it's, uh, they're just at each other's throats. That, that's what works about part three so well, actually, is how he's got like a side, well, not like a sidekick, but he's got a, there's someone with him along with it. And it's, it's fucking great. Like those two had great chemistry. I, yeah, I know. I know. I'm, I'm just like saying, it's just like, this is like crumb to look. Oh, of, of course. The music here is great. This is such a great shot. Rack focus into his face. Perfect. And it's great because it's a nice moment where John doesn't even try and be the hero this time. He just is like, and I need to protect Holly mode. Gets her out of the way and jumps on top mm -hmm. of her. He's like, someone else can take care of it. I'm just worried about mm -hmm. Holly now. This is great. No, no, he's with us. He's with us. Okay, goodbye forever until part two. Uh. I will say, I wish he wasn't in part two because it's just like, you know, I get they said friends, but it's like, no, you live in two different, you're not in the same city right now. It's like, it should be done. Like, you, you never see each other again. It's kind of like a, we'll see each other at the, when we get the fucking, 
pre com com commentation from the mayor or whatever, but that's it. And then it's great to get that payoff for that. And on a great line, you know, love this. If this is idea of Christmas, like, I'd be here for New Year's. Perfect comedy line. We see them kissing. We know their relationship is back on track. And then we end with a version of Let It Snow You Never Hear. I could not find this um, streaming anywhere when my dad requested me to get this for her mix CD for him. I had to rip this off of YouTube. This is a very weird version of Let It Snow that you can't find. So you had to rip it from YouTube, not a... Uh... Yeah, not, yeah, not a cassette tape. Spotify. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, but no, apparently um, this was the original version of Let's Know, though. Um, no, but what more can we say? This is a fucking fantastic movie. I'm going to watch it again this season, you know, with my fa family and all that. But I love it. it says Big Johnson, Little Johnson. Uh, no, I mean, this movie is just fucking perfect. Sequels, not as much, but still enjoyable. But man, this is fucking just badass oh yeah again it's a perfect movie the this and raiders of the lost ark yeah. best action movies well yeah well as we wrap this up um i just want to say this is going to be the last video we have for 2021 um want to thank everyone who has been joining it's been a pretty big year for the channel we've gained a lot of viewers so want to thank everyone for sticking with us on this crazy ass journey and we're gonna have a lot of great stuff for 2022 um we already have some plans for some more fun stuff and you might be seeing jacob a little bit more it's i know it's been a while for him so we'll, we'll drag him back reluctantly do you have anything to say jake yes in the words of the tv edit of die hard yippee Kaye, mother trucker no mr falcon well there's probably many different ones yeah, so I was going to ask, like, I forgot, I didn't get a chance to ask you. So that was your first in introduction. I was watching Die Hard edited for TV. Yeah. That's 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 quite the introduction. No wonder why you like part three better. Yeah, I mean, I, I still like the movie a lot when I watched on TV. Um, the censorship didn't bother me at all, but um, but no, it's... It, yeah. It's like watching it pan and scan. You lose a lot. Mm -hmm. Uh, no, that that's the thing I will say with um, Die Hard 4 that um, someone said was, um, you know, the problem with PG-13 Die Hard is John McClane needs to be saying fuck every other sentence like I usually do on these commentaries. Uh, but, yeah, it's, um, I don't want to hear Mr. Falcon. I need to hear yippee ki motherfucker. Well, good night. yippee ki watermelon farmer. This is what happens when you find a stranger in the Alps. <laughs> Going back to the Big Lebowski. I'm tying it all back. Oh my God. It's just as perfect as this script. <laughs> exactly. Set up and pay off, baby. Call me McTiernan and I'll help you make Die Hard 6. Oh my God. <laughs> all right. Well, have a good night, everybody. Merry Christmas and happy holidays. Merry Christmas. Uh,